Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. So, crying is weird. I mean, can we just agree that crying is weird? And I don't mean weird in like the way that like if you cry, you're weird, because I'm not like making any sort of accusatory statements or anything like that. It's weird in that it's unusual when you think in terms of all of the creatures that exist. There is scant evidence that animals cry. And with the amount of misery in the animal kingdom, you might expect that they would be crying all the time. You know, like, take the mayfly. It is born. It's told, welcome to the world. You now have 24 hours to live. Like, it should start crying right then and cry straight through for the 24 hours. You know, or the praying mantis. He meets his future sweetheart, says, this is great, love you, knocks her up, ends up, she's going to eat his head. (laughs) This should be nothing but crying in the animal kingdom. Fortunately, we make up for the rest of the species because we cry all the time. And we are unique in that we cry in emotional distress. We sob even. You know, the average number of times a woman cries each month. What's the average number? Any guesses? (laughs) 5.3 times a month is what they say. Some of you are like, "It at 5.3 times a day, (laughs) a week. Then the the average number of times a man cries. Anyone anyone want to get in a month? Anyone want to guess? They say 1.3 times a month. And some of you, I know some of you men are thinking, where are all these crybabies? <laughs> Who's crying the 1.3 times? Who's jacking up our, you know, our rates here? You have to ask, you know, if we, have, we want to determine what actually makes us cry. So we're going to do a little social experiment here. Everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. Here we go. I'm not going to try to make you cry. That would be, that would be funny, but it would be cruel. Um, So, here it is. I want you to sit down if what I say is something that caused you to shed a tear at some time, a tear of sadness at some time when when this might have happened. Ready? So, when you heard that Toys R Us was closing, (laughs) no one, was I the only one that cried? All right, anyway. How about cat videos? Not that, they ex- ex- not, not that they're cute or anything, but that they exist at all. <laughs> Did that make you, all right, no? All right. How about, all right, let's try this one. Anyone who participated in the Matthew 25 challenge, did anyone get a little weepy reading some of those emails? If you got a little weepy on, uh-huh, I knew that. I got to sit on that one too. All right, now, so some of you, I don't know what's going to move you guys, so you're a little hard-hearted here, but... How about the fault in our stars? If you saw that and you cried during a fault in our stars, that movie, all right. 
How about old, I'm going to pull out the big guns, old yeller or any movie where a dog dies? Marley, right? I know. All right. How about a more recent movie that you got a little teary-eyed, Only the Brave? Uh Uh-huh. I did that one just for Logan because I knew he would have to sit. All right, I don't know about the rest of you. The stock market crashing, would that do it for some of you? You're like, oh yeah, I cry all the time. All right, this is us. All right, sorry. All right, everyone, go you guys can sit. You guys can sit. Maybe for you, maybe for you it's sickness. Maybe someone that you care about. Maybe it's someone that you love. They get sick, or maybe it's you. Or maybe it's the reality of suffering or the certainty of death. There is something that will make us cry, something that will make us weep. Now, I don't really consider myself a crier. I mean, not like Trevor, but... (laughs) But this week, Trevor was telling us a story. We were talking about like the last time we all cried. It was me, Chris, and Trevor were doing some planning for the series. And we're talking about the last time we cried. He starts telling a story, and I can't even tell you the story because Chris and I were all a mess. (laughs) He's just him telling us the story. Uh, And we're getting all teary-eyed because of these, you know, this happens. And I think in many ways, as I get older, I seem to be tearing up a lot more. So the last time I had a really good cry... It was uh, June of 1990. No, I'm just kidding. It wasn't. It was actually, it was actually this past June. I was uh, ha- I was at my in classes down in North Carolina, and how weird, right? You're in like lectures, academic lectures. Anyway, there is an old saint. Uh, his name's Leighton Ford, and he uh, was giving a lecture, and it, it was a pretty straightforward lecture. Nobody else was really seemed to be impacted uh, in a, any significant way. Uh, checking Facebook and email and stuff like this. He's telling how he was mentored by Billy Graham. And he was explaining the impact that that had on him as a young man and how it had changed the whole trajectory of his life. And I was a wreck. I was a wreck, and I couldn't even understand it. Like, it really impacted me. And after the class, I, I left. I tried to call my wife and tell her. I'm like, sure, I got here. I couldn't even explain it to her. I, like, had to stop talking about it. And then, I, like, it was just, I was a wreck. And I realized, like, why, in the, why am I such a wreck? And, it, and there was a sense in which he had painted a picture of what could have been but wasn't for me. For, for him, it was. But I had never experienced that. I had never had that as a young man. I never had a seasoned saint who came up alongside me and sort of helped me figure things out in the faith. And I was so crushed and I was so hurt at the loss of what could have been, even what should have been, but wasn't. And I was overwhelmed. And I think often we, we get overwhelmed when something isn't the way it ought to be. Like my favorite musical, Les Mis, Fantine. When you hear her story and you engage with her as a character and you you think about the cruelty of her co-workers and the economic system, the unjust economic system that caused her heartache, 
the brutality that she faced in the street and the exploitation from various men, the abuse and the sickness that led to a premature death and then she ends up leaving an orphan. So she can sing, life has killed the dream I dreamed. And our hearts, they're overwhelmed and our eyes, they overflow. I know it's Palm Sunday and it's supposed to be celebration, right? And all of that. But I, we need to go somewhere darker and somewhere sadder before we get to celebrate. So open, if you would, in the Bible to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke 19, 28. Palm Sunday, for those who don't know, it's the day that we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And what a party it was. People are cheering and worshiping and they're singing and the crowds go wild. It's great. Because they understand that, that Jesus might very well be the long-awaited king. So it's a pretty awesome scene. We're going to read it. We're going to read it here together, starting in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage, not our Bethpage, and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one else has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. Now, I don't think this whole cult thing, some people point to this as like a miracle. Jesus sent them and he just knew and he miraculously, I don't think that's what this was. I don't think this was a miracle as much as a statement. It was actually customary in that day for political leaders or for rabbis to ask to borrow something like an animal that it might, they might need for something like this. So I don't think this was any sort of a miracle, but I think Jesus was claiming a prophecy from the Old Testament written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, Zechariah 9.9. It said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think Jesus was claiming this prophecy. It wasn't a mistake that he asked for a colt. Then, the people lay their cloaks down on the colt and on the road before him. Verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then laying down their cloaks, it's sort of like their version of a red carpet. And it was used in the Old Testament to honor a newly installed king. And then in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He refuses to silence his followers. You see, with all of these things, Jesus is taking the initiative to lay claim to the title of king or Messiah. He's claiming that's who he is. Now, Messiah, so you know you have Jesus Christ. It's not like his last name, right? Like it's not like Robert Kelly and Jesus Christ. It's not his surname. Christ is actually a title. 
He's Jesus the Christ, and Christ means anointed one, which is just a, the Greek way of referring to the Hebrew word Messiah. So it's the same idea. He's saying it's Jesus the Messiah. And why do we call him this? See, the Jewish people envisioned a king who would bring peace and prosperity and hope to the nation of Israel. He would fight for justice. He would defeat their enemies. He would rule in goodness and in power. And then later we find out that he wasn't merely a Jewish king. He wasn't simply going to be a king for the Jewish people. In that same text, Zechariah, but the next verse, Zechariah 9.10, it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He isn't just a king for the Jewish people. He is the king of all people. And he is going to usher in a kingdom of peace and hope and prosperity, unlike the world has ever seen, the hope of the nations, the savior of the world. And there is no other. He's king of kings. And every single person will ultimately recognize Jesus as king, either as a defeated enemy who resisted him or as a citizen of his new kingdom who honored him and loved him and embraced him. You see, he's your king. He's my king. Great celebration, of course. Why would there not be? But then the Palm Sunday story takes a very sad turn. Look back at verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. We don't get a lot of indication of the kind of things that made Jesus weep. And this is one of them. He wept over it. And in verse 42, he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. See, Jesus is heartbroken knowing that the city of Jerusalem will reject him. Now, of course, you would expect him to be heartbroken, but he was rejected in, in many other instances. But without the weeping, what makes this circumstance, this situation Different, And I think the sadness is more than simply him being rejected by the people living in that city at that time. See, Jerusalem had, had become a typology. It had become almost like a living metaphor for what the world ought to have been, for what it could have been. The name itself, Jerusalem, most likely means the city of peace. And it has been anything but that. It's been described as the center of the earth or the navel of the earth. And it came to represent the whole people of God. From Jerusalem would flow abundant fertility for the planet, food for everyone, healing for the nations, and peace. In fact, the future of the world 
rests in Jerusalem, according to the prophets. Because it came to represent the hope of the world united under the righteous king. It's a picture of the golden era under the, the good king Solomon. But it became something bigger than that, a picture of what the world was meant to be. And yet, Jesus saw that the city would once again be destroyed. Why? See, it was a city that marked the greatest failures of humanity and our rejection of our king. The people would once again reject the king and with it lose the possibility of peace and prosperity and hope and salvation that ought to have been theirs. Now, historically, in 70 AD, that's exactly what happened to that city of Jerusalem. The Romans rolled in. They had encircled the city, just like Jesus had, pro Jesus had prophesied. They set up an embankment against it. They starved out the people who experienced hunger and thirst ultimately laid siege to it where they dashed many of them to the ground, including their children, who died as a consequence of their rebellion. It was dismantled, the city torn apart. And I think Jesus is heartbroken because he sees what ought to have been. He's heartbroken knowing that we refuse to follow him and to trust him. And that peace and hope and prosperity will once again elude us because of our self-centeredness and our refusal to surrender. You see, the old Jerusalem, it represents every rejection, every rebellion. It's the shattering of peace and hope. But there is another Jerusalem. And that's the... That's the great hope that we find in the scriptures. It's the new Jerusalem. Because, you know, the, the Jewish people are, if nothing else, unbelievably resilient, incredibly hopeful in the face of overwhelming circumstances. There's actually even an old story that's told that, you know, scientists discover that the earth is going to be destroyed. In three days, it's going to be flooded. And, and, and never again will the land be seen on the face of the planet. The scientists announce it, and the Pope, he speaks out to all of the Christians in the world, and he says, repent now so you can go to heaven. And then the Buddhists, they talk to all their people, and they say, meditate now so you can reach nirvana. You have three days. And the chief rabbi, he gets up, and he speaks to all of the Jewish people. He says, my Jewish family, we have three days to learn how to breathe underwater because <laughs> they ain't going to die. And they had come to understand that there would, be, there would come a day when there would be a new Jerusalem. And the New Testament writers, they pick up this theme at the very end of the Bible in the Revelation. They say, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. 
and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. You see, there are two Jerusalems. The old is the place of rebellion and the new is the place of hope. And where you spend eternity is going to be determined by which city you choose to live in. So are you ready for your visit? The old Jerusalem was not, but the scriptures tell us that he is standing at the door of your heart. And he's asking that you let him in, that you pledge your allegiance to him as king and savior. But we continue to reject him. And we deserve the destruction that he promised. The old Jerusalem has to be destroyed because we have rebelled against God's plan. You see, every time we sin, every time we break God's commandment, every time we hurt another person or we refuse to help someone in need, every time we end up living by the ways of the old Jerusalem, and we deserve the worst kind of punishments that the king can dole out. But it, ha it doesn't have to end that way. I mean, this is the mystery of the gospel. It's why it's called the good news. You see, Jesus took on the fate of the old Jerusalem. That's what's about to happen in the rest of Holy Week. He takes on the fate of the old Jerusalem. The enemy of God surrounds him, sets up an embankment against him, lays siege to him, left him alone and embattled, starved him out so he was hungry and thirsty. And he tasted death. He was dashed for us. The prophecy he made said that your children would suffer, but it wasn't simply our children that suffered. The Son of God, Jesus, suffered. His child suffered for our sin. Jesus was completely dismantled, not a stone left on the other. You see, you don't need to suffer that fate. You don't have to get what you deserve. So what are you waiting for? Do you see what awaits you if you refuse to follow the king? Because to refuse him is to pick a kingdom of hate and discord and disease and heartache and pestilence that ends in death. But only in his kingdom is there going to be peace and joy and hope and love. And so we don't want to be like the early citizens of that old Jerusalem who didn't recognize the day that God visited them. The day that Jesus stood there asking for their allegiance, pledging hope and a future. And I don't know what your future holds. And you don't know what your future holds. I don't know how often you are going to get a chance to surrender your life to the king. 
Today may very well be the last opportunity you get. And we have to put it in perspective like this. Because you can't delay. You may not know. But you don't want to miss the day that God visits you. And then what about the people around you? Maybe you're at the place where you say, you know what, I've already made this decision. I am so glad I'm reaffirmed in hearing this today that I have made a decision to live in this new Jerusalem. But what about the people around you? Does your heart break for those who haven't yet found God? Because that's what made Jesus cry. That's what made him weep. He looked over the city and he saw that they would not accept him as king and that they would spend an eternity separated from God because of their hard-heartedness. You know, sometimes I wonder if I'm emotionally overwhelmed by the right things, or if maybe I'm hard-hearted about the things that, that I, I ought to be tender-hearted about. To year 2000, less than 2% of our island knew Jesus as Lord and Savior. By 2010, the statistics tell us that that was up to 3.9%, which represents some 40,000 followers of Christ in Long Island, in Nassau County. 40,000, which is pretty spectacular. In the last eight years since that, those measurements have, done, have been done have been exceptionally great years for the, the work of the church in Nassau. Very exciting. And yet, you know what it means? It means that there are 1,320,000 people who don't yet love the king. 1,320,000 who are still living in the old Jerusalem. When you sit in a coffee shop, do you see what's going to become of them? When you're at work, are you just so wrapped up in all of the things you need to get done that you fail to see the, the citizens of the old, old Jerusalem? When you're walking in your neighborhood and you're waving to your friends, when you're spending time with your family, do you, do you get a sense as to the reality of their future? of their eternity, of a life without the king. When you look out over the old Jerusalem, what do you see? When you look out over your town, what do you see? Do you see the 10,000 people who are living in the Willistons who have yet to know God? Do you see the 5,000 people in Carl Place who don't honor him as king? The 19,200 people in Mineola the 10,000 in New Hyde Park, the 22,000 in Garden City. Do you look out over the city and does your heart break? Is it moved to compassion for their lost souls? Because if not, we need to repent. As followers of Christ, something is wrong if we don't have the heart of the Savior for those who are far from God. We need to repent. We need to take the time. We're going to be, we're going to be singing some songs. We're going to be going to the table in just a few minutes. And we need to let our hearts be touched and be broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus. The things that make him weak. That make him weep. So are you ready for his visit? See, everything we do here 
as a church is rooted in this great mission, that there are people who are far from Jesus, who are living in the old, old Jerusalem, who Jesus longs to see come into his kingdom. And he has sent us, he has commissioned us to do that great work. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to lead us in a couple of songs and they're going to get our hearts prepared as we go to the Lord's table. But I'm asking that you would be thinking about these things, letting your heart be touched, way heavy. We're going to celebrate the Hosanna, the great praise of our God. Then we're going to go to the Lord's table where we're going to see the suffering that Christ faced for us. And then we're going to sing about the glory of what could be. Use this as a chance to examine your hearts. Let them break for what breaks his.